You can turn to Luke 11. We'll finish up this section that began with the Lord's Prayer. Continue focusing on prayer this morning. I was at a conference not too long ago where the preacher was warning against the danger of self-centered prayers. He was highlighting that, that as Christians we have bigger priorities than just fulfilling our own desires. And he, so he's challenging us to pray for the salvation of our neighbors and to intercede for our neighbors on their behalf. And, and at one point the preacher said, you know, if God answered all of your prayers overnight, would your neighbors even notice? It's a good question, but the, the moment was ruined when my friend Tyler turned to me and he said, yes, I believe my neighbors would notice two brand new Lamborghinis in my driveway. Well, thankfully for us this morning, Jesus hasn't left us without instruction as it pertains to prayer. We, we have the Lord Jesus Christ's instruction on how we ought to pray, what we should pray for, the, the attitude or the disposition with which we can pray, uh, the motivation by which we pray. What a treasure we have in God's Word, the instruction of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. So last week we looked at the first four verses of this passage. We said that this is a coherent whole, verses 1 through 13. We focused on the first four verses last week. We found Jesus praying, and, and, and at this moment, it, it sort of stoked something in one of the disciples who said, Lord, teach us to pray, and Jesus does that. You know, if we had to sum up last week, it is that God's people are to be a people of prayer, and that we should be praying God-centered prayers that reflect our complete and utter dependence on Him. So if we wanted to take, kind of think about this passage as a whole, it took us two weeks. If we we're going to preach it in one week, we might have outlined it this way. What should we pray in verses 1 to 4? That's those God-centered prayers that reflect our utter dependence on Him physically and more importantly, spiritually. Then we come to verse 5 this morning, and we might answer the question, how should we pray or with what disposition or attitude? And then lastly, in verses 11 through 13, why should we pray? So let's look at that beginning in verse 5, really verses 5 through 10. How should we pray? You know, in verse 2, when Jesus began to instruct us on how we should pray, how the disciples should pray, he said, you begin by saying, Father, hallowed be your name. And we talked about the glory of the Lord. It was just prayed for by Nate. The glory of the Lord being demonstrated in all the world. So if we are to revere the Lord, if he is this holy, set-apart God of the universe, which he is, we might be tempted then to say, well, then should I keep, should I sort of keep my prayers at a minimum so as not to bother the Lord of the universe? He is holy and he is sovereign and I'm just one little creature on this planet among billions of creatures. Does he want to hear from me? Verse 5, I think, answers that question for us as Jesus turns from instructing the disciples on what should be the content of their prayer and begins instructing them on how they can approach God through His work. So we see the 
this parable, this story in verses 5 through 7. Let's read it together. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I don't know what kind of emergency it would take for you to get up out of bed at midnight and go knock on your neighbor's door. Some of you are more forthright than others. I would literally have to be dying for that to happen. This is not a physical emergency, though. This is a, this is a social emergency. We know, we've seen back in chapter 7, we just talked uh, about it uh, not too long ago, that there, this was a culture of hospitality. There was immense cultural and social pressure to be a great host. So when a friend shows up at midnight, it doesn't matter that it's midnight. You, you were expected in some sense to serve that friend. You know, why this friend was traveling, we don't know. It could have been uh, hot, too hot to travel during the day. But regardless, this man, this host, finds himself in a bit of a conundrum. Walmart hadn't gone to 24 hours uh, open schedule yet. So this man is in a, in a tough decision. Let my guest go without bread or wake up my neighbor at midnight. You know, so he, he decides, you know, whatever it takes for me to be a great host, that's what I'm going to do. And the neighbor's reply lets us know maybe how inappropriate it was to be knocking on someone's door at midnight. It's not like today's culture where it's like, well, maybe they're awake, maybe they're not. People went to bed when it got dark. But so he knocks on the door and the neighbor replies, letting us know that this disturbance was not well received. He is not happy. He asks him, stop bothering me. The door is shut, which is, it's, would be loud to, to open the door. You know, where these ancient doors would have been loud to unlock and, and open creating a disturbance in the, cl- in the house. The door is shut, the door is locked, and the biggest deal of all, the children are asleep. You know, these weren't big houses where you could throw pebbles at the window and just wake Dad up and say, hey, hook me up with some bread. If you're waking Dad up, you're waking up the whole family. And anybody who's been around kids for more than one day knows that when they're asleep, you don't mess with that. That's what he, so it's, it's really, it's actually not for lack of food that, that this guy doesn't want to get up. It's for the chaos that that would create. He doesn't want to wake his kids up at midnight. And if that means that I don't get to serve my neighbor, then so be it. So Jesus is asking, which one of you would do this? Which one of you would, would, would be the one that, to go knock on his neighbor's door? In fact, by the time you get to verse 7, the end of verse 7, you see that question mark, you're sort of reminded that, oh, this, this story is actually part of a larger question that Jesus is asking. Who would go and knock on his neighbor neighbor's door at midnight, risk waking up his kids so that you can get some, some bread? You know, the question in verse 5, which of you. It almost gets lost in the story. 
But I think in Jesus asking who among you would do this, he is in effect saying which of you would have the nerve to wake up his neighbor at midnight and ask for bread. You know, as, as funny and as relatable as that story is, the, the explanation that Jesus gives in verse 8 can be actually somewhat difficult to interpret. Look there in verse 8. I tell you, though he will not give, get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now most of the difficulty in understanding this passage is, is what does that word impudence means? That's how the ESV translates it there. That's a good translation. The word means something like a lack of sensitivity to what is proper, careless, caring less about the good opinion of others. It could be translated shamelessness, impertinence, impudence, or ignoring of convention. So, so we got to understand, how is Jesus in taking this story and how is he applying it? And there's, there's three options here as we think about how to understand this text. Now, usually I don't give the options because I don't want everybody in the room wondering, well, I like this option and Kyle chose this option. But today, I think it will actually be helpful to kind of think about the options in interpreting this, this text. Some of your translations say something else, and if we're going to understand the text, we want to go there. So some take this word to mean something like persistence. Because of the man's persistence, he gets out of bed and gives him bread. This makes sense in, in some ways, given that the story ends essentially with the man saying no. But at some point, apparently, in Jesus' explanation, the man actually gets out of bed and gives bread to the man. Also, that's the point of another parable that Jesus gives in Luke chapter 18 about a persistent widow who keeps going back to a wicked judge until she gets justice. So it's true that persistence is a virtue in prayer. But the, the problem is it's a bit of a, a leap to translate this word persistence. And there's no sense in the story when, where it just ends that the man actually kept knocking and kept knocking and kept knocking. So as, though it's true, I don't think it's the meaning of this particular text. As my, one of my seminaries pr professors would say, right doctrine, wrong text. Another option is to say that his impudence, his, his ignoring of social convention, his shamelessness, is not referring to the man that's knocking on the door at midnight, but to the man who is being disturbed. So he is impudent. He is experiencing shamelessness in some sense. If this, was, if this is how we took it, it would mean something like this. Since the neighbor, the guy who, who is in bed with his children, he doesn't want to be shamed by his other neighbors. So not because he's a friend, but because he doesn't want to be embarrassed he gets out of bed, and he gives the man, man some bread. The story would then be about God who acts for his own reputation, not about the man who's actually knocking. 
Now again, this fits, this fits very nicely with the context. We just learned that we should be praying to the Lord, hallowed be your name. We know that God acts for his own name. In Ezekiel 36, he tells Israel, not for your sake, but for the sake of my name, I am going to act. We saw that the Lord does. He, he hallows his own name in all the universe by acting for the good of his people, particularly in salvation. So, um, if this were the correct interpretation, it would be saying something that's true about God. But again, I, I'm not sure the word means a desire to avoid shame as much as it means a willingness to endure shame. It's a carelessness about the good opinion of others. And also, I think the emphasis of the story falls on the one who is asking, not the guy in the house. Jesus said, which one of you would do this? Do what? Knock on a door at midnight. So when Jesus applies the parable, we would expect him to apply it to the person who is then knocking. Now, this is this is difficult stuff, right? There's passages in Scripture. Scripture's clear. It's understandable. But that doesn't mean that there aren't places that we come to that are hard for us to grasp. But there does seem to be a way. There does seem to be an option that, that lets that word mean what it normally means and also makes sense out of the context in which Jesus uses it. And that's to say, the man gets the bread because he was willing to go knock on the door at midnight. The NIV, I think, does actually a nice job of translating it, shameless audacity. It's because he was willing to lay aside any sort of shamelessness and he had the audacity to go knock on this neighbor's door. So what's the point then? If that's right, what's the point that Jesus is making as it pretend, uh, pertains to prayer. It seems that Jesus is saying that we can boldly and unashamedly approach God in prayer. What is more audacious, knocking on your neighbor's door at midnight or speaking to the Lord of the universe? And yet that's the privilege that God's people have in and through Jesus Christ. No shame or hesitancy should hold us back from running to the Lord in prayer. That should, our disposition should be a shameless audacity to turn to the Lord in prayer, knowing that it's not based on our own merits or our own goodness or our own efforts, but on the work of Christ. We should have a quick trigger, so to speak, when it comes to turning to prayer. We should be, we should seek to be characterized as, as a church and individually as a people that are continually turning, sometimes in long stretches, sometimes in, in moments, shorter moments, but a constant turning to the Lord, turning to the Lord, turning to the Lord. Instead of setting a timer and trying to reach some, some goal that Martin Luther reached or Charles Wesley or some of your heroes, instead of, instead of setting a timer, instead ask the Lord to work on your heart so that that, that wouldn't feel like as much labor as it, as it is turning to the Lord throughout the day and in structured times and pleading with Him in prayer. Ask Him to work in your heart to give you that disposition, a willingness to turn to Him continually and constantly. You know, the good news for us is that God is not a groggy and grumpy neighbor. 
You know, when I first became a Christian, I started reading reading the Bible, and I, I started in in the Gospels. I don't know if it's Luke or not. I don't I don't remember, but I would read stories like this, or, or stories like the persistent widow, even that we just mentioned, and I. I would think there had to be a one-to-one correlation between a character in the story and God. Is God like a wicked judge who doesn't want to answer our prayers, but if we, if we persist enough, he actually does it? Or here, is God like a groggy, grumpy neighbor who doesn't want to act, but if we're bold enough, maybe he will actually give in? Did Jesus just compare God to a grumpy neighbor who doesn't want to give us what we need? But that's not how we read the Bible, is it? I've I've grown in my understanding of how to read the Scriptures. That's not even the point of the story. The point of comparison is, is the man who has the need and the disciple of Christ who is audacious enough to make his requests. We come unashamedly knowing that God delights in our prayers, and He delights in answering our prayers. And Jesus goes on to explain what he means here in saying, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. God isn't the groggy, grumpy neighbor. When we come knocking, it isn't an inconvenient hour. The Lord doesn't say from within his bedroom chamber, The door is locked. Do not bother me. I cannot get up and give you anything. In fact, we serve an infinite God, and if we serve an infinite God, there's no such thing as an inconvenient hour for him. So God does not just tolerate prayer the way you might listen in to the, to the story of a child and it's going over and it has to start over every time they mess up and you're sort of tolerating this. God doesn't just tolerate prayer. He commands it. And He delights in it. This knocking and seeking, it's something to be continually done, this asking. There seems to be sort of an intensification in those in those words, you're asking and then you're seeking and then finally you're knocking. And if we do, the text says, He gives, He provides, He opens the door. The idea in the text is in light of God's nature. And now we know in light of the work of Christ on the cross, He stands ready to respond to the requests of His children. He stands ready to respond to the requests of His children. And so we should ask, and we should seek, and we should knock, we should be audacious in coming to Him. R.C. Sproul said this, consider the riches we have lost from our Father's house because we have simply failed to ask for them. Now, that's what James says, right? I know we, we believe in a sovereign God who works all things according to the counsel of His will. But it's true that One of the means he uses is our prayers. So consider the riches we have lost from our Father's house because we have simply failed to ask for them. And then he challenges his reader to make very very specific prayers. He says, so often our prayers are so nebulous, so general. Those kind of prayers hardly encourage us to come back for other prayers. It is the person who prays specifically who has the blessed experience of seeing prayers answered, and this encourages more specific prayer. If you pray specifically, it's easier to turn around and then thank the Lord when He meets that specific need. Of course, this text has been abused. 
You know, but sometimes I, I feel like we, we sometimes miss the goodness of a passage because we just want to run so fast on how we can talk about how it's been abused. It has been abused, but we don't want to, we don't want to just focus on the abuse. This isn't a blank check. This isn't some kind of prosperity gospel. If you have enough faith, God will give you whatever your heart desires. You can have those two Lamborghinis in your driveway. God's people are invited to bring all their cares and concerns to the Father. But we recognize as God's people, we have new priorities that have been given to us. We have a different agenda from the world's agenda. We saw last week that we should pray for the glory of God, the holiness of God, to be known in all the world. We, we called to pray for the advancement and the, the consummation of the kingdom. We are called to have a humble dependence on God as we both pray for our physical needs and our spiritual needs. The Word of God informs the sorts of things that we bring before the Lord in prayer. You know, a look around at some of the prayers recorded in the Scripture remind us to be praying for, again, the glory of God. For us to be made like Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. For God to grant us wisdom when we need wisdom, which is all the time. We are to pray for boldness to be given to us so that we might share the gospel of Christ. Pray that we might grasp, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, he prays that we have strength to grasp the immense and incomprehensible love of God. We pray that we might be strengthened in the inner man. The Bible shapes and drives the sort of things that become a new sort of emphasis for us. Again, we bring all of our cares because He cares for us. Things like food and clothes, Jesus commends praying for. That's okay. But we're driven by a different kind of agenda than the world. We ask and we seek and we knock. And we ask and we do all these things expectantly because we serve a God who stands ready to hear and respond to the prayers of His people. Can we? This is the Lord's prayer. It's, it's more corporate than we want to think. This is a corporate sort of teaching. This is given to the disciples as a model and an instruction for how the church should be a place of prayer. So this is something we not only do on our own time, but we do this together. Provision and forgiveness and protection are asked for for the community's sake in Luke chapter 11. You know, this is why we labor as a church to be characterized by prayer. Our public services are bookended and filled in the middle with public prayer. When, when the elders meet, a three-hour meeting, we spend the first 45 minutes praying for each of, each of you. We want to be characterized by prayer. And I know it, I know it can be difficult you know, for, for parents of young kids when we take a chunk out of the middle of our service and we're praying. And I know for a small child that feels like a long prayer, Brennan grabbed, or not Brennan, Calvin, during Nate's scripture reading, he was looking for the Bible. He finally got a hold of one. By the time Nate was praying, he came to me and said, what page are we on? 
as if he's going to be able to find page 750 or whatever page we're on. But I get it. That's what I'm saying. I get that it's hard and kids are fidgety and, and I understand that. But hopefully over time, we, we are demonstrating and modeling to our children that we can come before the Lord in prayer together as a church. Hopefully they're being trained and even shaped by the fact that one of the things we get to do, one of the things we get to do is to come before Him in prayer. You know, before we move on quickly, notice that word everyone in verse 10. For everyone who asks. You know, what a joy. We, we, we made a similar point last week, so we won't dwell here. But what a joy to know that this is not the privilege of someone who is super spiritual, someone who is known in the community and in the church as a prayer warrior. Again, we don't pray we don't get to pray on the basis of our own successes, but on the basis of the work of Christ, we can approach the Father in prayer. So how should we pray? Boldly, audaciously. Not serving our own interests, but being shaped by the Word of God. In light of our great high priest, the one through whom we have access to God, we can shamelessly approach the throne of grace and expect God to hear us and to answer us. What a privilege. What a privilege. Next we see the why should we pray. So if you have notes, like point one was last week. I printed those out kind of funky. but So this is like point two or three, depending on whether you're taking your own notes or whether you're looking at the notes I printed. But the question is, why should we pray? You know, we just answered, how should we play, pray unashamedly? Why should we pray? Well, we see in verses 11 through 13. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So Jesus gives another round of images to help illustrate his point. Once again, his, his illustrations come in the form of a question. Which father gives his kid a snake when he wants a fish? Or which father thinks it's funny when his kid asks for an egg to give him a scorpion? You know, this is, this is unthinkable. Even, even for parents who enjoy pulling pranks on their children. This is not a prank. This is, this is wicked and this is cruel. This is sick and it is twisted. And, and Jesus is saying very few parents, no one that's here while he's speaking, is wicked and twisted enough to give their kids something harmful or deadly when they simply ask for something that they could use, like bread or, or fish or an egg. So Jesus employs an argument here from the lesser to the greater. If this is true, then how much more true is this? And I was messing around with Paul in men's Bible study because we were in a similar sort of argument in our men's Bible study from the lesser to the greater. And I said if the Detroit Tigers could beat the Chicago Cubs, let's use the twins. Let's, let's get Barb riled up too. If the Detroit Tigers can beat the Minnesota Twins, how much more can the Colorado Rockies be able to defeat the Twins? 
That's the sort of argument, the, the sort of emphasis that Jesus employs in verse 13. If sinful parents know how to give good gifts, how much more can our Father know how to give the best gift? In fact, that gift is the Holy Spirit to those who ask. By God's common grace, even even wicked parents, that's what he says, you're evil and you wouldn't do this. Even us as sinful creatures, we know how to give good gifts to our kids. How much more? God who is perfect in holiness and righteousness. He is the Father of all those who turn to him in faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. How much more does he know how to give good and necessary gifts? So let's make a few quick points as we, uh, I shouldn't say wrap up because we're a little further than that, but we come to him, first we come to him as Father. We made this point last week, but, but Jesus sort of bookends his instruction on prayer by talking about the Father. We can address God as Father, and we are assured that He is better than any earthly father. He knows how to give the best gifts. And so as we, as we think about the opportunity that we have, as, as Jesus said in verse 2, to address God as Father through Jesus Christ, we know that there isn't some secret formula there aren't some magical words that we have to know to, that, that we can sort of twist God's arm to get him to do our bidding. Instead, we get the sort of access to God that a child has to his father. One author says that, that only uh, the, the son of the king dares to wake him up at 2 a.m. and ask for a glass of water. Who has that sort of access to the king at 2 a.m.? Only a child has that sort of Access. The Lord has a tender care and a love for his children. Even as we pray for his name to be hallowed in all creation, we recognize that he is separate and beyond us and beyond all creation, but he isn't distant that he's unavailable to hear from his people. So we approach God, we come to him as Father through being united to Christ, who is the Son of God. Also, we can trust that His gifts are always good. On the foundation of God's unchanging character, we can be assured of this. He is a good God that gives good gifts to His children. He is unchanging, and He is always good. So that which He gives us is Good. He is our wise and loving Father who knows better than us what we truly need. And so there's these these times in life then, these dark seasons where we have to fight tooth and nail to believe this, to believe that God is always good and what He does in our life is good for His glory and for our good. We're tempted to question God's goodness and wonder if he's forgotten about us. Wonder if he has deserted us. You know, this is one reason we preach the gospel week in and week out. Yes, we want non-Christians to understand that they have sinned against a holy and righteous God and to turn from those sins and to trust in the substitutionary death of our Lord Jesus Christ, to, to rely on the work of Christ, 
to be reconciled to a holy and righteous God. He is the only way. But there's another reason we proclaim the gospel every week. It's that we as Christians need to be reminded weekly so that we don't grow suspicious of the Lord. What's What's the basis by which we might have confidence that the Lord loves us and that he's acting for our good? It's the gospel. It's Christ crucified. That's what Paul says at the, in Romans 8. That's what he says in Romans 5, 6 through 11. How can you know that God loves you? Romans 5. How can you know that God is for you? Romans 8. He did not withhold his own son. So we preach Christ so that when we come in weary from the week, we're reminded of his goodness. That we don't have to keep asking like an insecure child, are you sure you love me? We are fully assured that God is our Father, and we need to look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ to find that confidence as we make that claim. We need an unshakable certainty that God is our Father for us to have the humility to trust Him when it seems as if our prayers are going unheard and unanswered. You know, there are reasons beyond us for His designs. There are secret things, Deuteronomy 29, 29, that are simply not given to us. So what do we do when we don't understand? We trust Him. You know, sometimes, sometimes the answer is no because we ask in order to spend it on our, on our own selfish desires. The answer is no. Sometimes we ask for things that we don't realize will actually harm us. There's a proverb that says, don't make me rich or poor. I don't want to face either one of those. That's wisdom. We may ask for a billion dollars. What would we do with that? We would destroy ourselves. When I had a bunch of student loan debt, they would say, you know, the Lord gives you as much money as you can handle. I say, well, I must be able to handle about negative $50,000. Sorry, that's not my notes. Let me keep going. Other times, the things that God gives us seem to be harmful and hurtful things. But we can trust that they are ultimately for our good. John Newton, many of you know that name. He wrote Amazing Grace, former slave trader, converted by God, turned pastor, again, beloved hymn writer. He wrote a, he wrote a hymn called, I Asked the Lord That I Might Grow. And we'll sing that in, in a few weeks here. But it reads like a journal where, where John Newton describes what happened when he asked the Lord for growth. He says, I went to the Lord in prayer, and I'll sort of summarize so I don't read the whole song to you, but I want to read the last two verses. But he says, I asked the Lord that I, could, that I could grow in faith, that I could grow in love and grace, that I would grow in the knowledge of His salvation, that I might more and more seek His faith. After all, God has taught me to pray this way. He assumed that the Lord would, would grant His request in a moment. He says, in, in some favored hour, God would act for me, and all of a sudden I would have grace and faith, and I would be righteous, and I wouldn't struggle with this sin anymore. You might be able to guess where this is headed. The Lord didn't do that. He allowed Newton, he says, to see the bitterness of his own sin. He was assaulted by spiritual 
warfare. More than that, he says, you know what the Lord did? He crossed, he ruined all of my well-laid plans. He humbled my heart and he laid me low because I asked him that I might grow. And then you get to the final couple of verses and he said, Lord, why is this? I trembling cried, wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? You're going to kill me? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest find thy all in me. It felt like desperation to the point where John Newton saying, are you going to pursue your worm to death? And the Lord says, often this is the means I use to break the hold of pride and selfishness, that you might find your all in all in Him. You see, the Father not only gives good gifts, but sometimes the the avenues by which these gifts arrive are difficult, even heart-wrenching. But if in the end, if in the end we are set free from self, and set free from pride, and we find our all in all in God himself, then we are truly blessed, and he has truly given us a good thing. The Father only gives good gifts. But he doesn't exist as some kind of a cosmic gift giver, meant to satisfy our every whim. Instead, he gives us something greater. He gives us himself. And the Father does this in giving His people the Holy Spirit. We see that at the very end of our text in verse 13. How much more, you might expect Jesus to say, will He give you good gifts? But He mentions one specifically. Will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? We can rest assured that whatever a sovereign God does is good and it is right because He has given the best gift the Holy Spirit, to His people. You know, the disciples would have heard this. They would have been familiar with with the language of the Spirit, but I don't think at this point they could have even conceived all that Jesus had in mind when He promised them that the Spirit would come. After His resurrection, Jesus would tell them that they will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll become my witnesses here and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And the Spirit did come. And those fearful disciples who who just days before had fled at the, the thought of having to face some kind of torture by following Christ, Those fearful disciples were transformed into courageous preachers of the gospel who laid down their life. What changed? They saw the resurrected Christ, and they were given the Holy Spirit of God. And the Spirit continues to work in God's people. He makes us alive, regenerating our hearts and causing us to call on the name of the Lord. He takes up residence in His people empowering us for service. He takes the word that he inspired and he renews our minds according to truth. He is the guarantee that God will do that which he has promised to do. He produces love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control in his people. 
He assures assures us of God's love for us and his fatherly care. He is grieved by our sin and he convicts us of our sin. He preserves and perseveres our faith as we endure trials and even persecution. And he prays for us. He prays for us. When we are groaning under the weight of living in this sin-cursed world, the Holy Spirit prays for us when we don't know what to pray. There's no greater gift than the presence of God, and we have that gift in the Holy Spirit. So God's gifts can always be trusted as good, and we know that because He's given us the best gift. God's church is meant to be a praying church. You know, if, if you, Luke also wrote the book of Acts, and as you read Acts, almost every time you see a bunch of disciples together, you know what you find them doing? Praying. I've got a, just a list of verses here. Don't try to keep up. You won't be able to flip fast enough. But Acts 1.14, all these, the 120, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, perhaps even praying that the Holy Spirit would come. Acts 2, after the Spirit had come, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Acts 4.24, in the face of threats against them, in the face of persecution, and when they had heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. Acts 6, what were they electing these servants to do? They were electing them to serve tables so that the apostles can dedicate themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And when they got those men together, what did they do? They laid hands on them and prayed on them. In Acts 8, 14 and 15, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Acts 12, 12, Peter went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where they were gathered together and were praying. Acts 13, 2, sending Paul and Barnabas off. Oh, okay, Paul and Barnabas are going off. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Acts 16, 25, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Acts 20, 36, and when he had said these things, he, that is Paul, knelt down and prayed with them all. Acts 21.5, and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed. From the earliest, from the, from the foundation of the church, the inclination of the church has been to pray. And may, by God's grace, our inclination as God's people be in the same direction. We repent of our suspicion of God by reminding ourselves of the gospel We turn down the noise of distraction that we talked about last week. We humble ourselves and we turn to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit as we pray. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit. We know that gift came as you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to pay the price for our sins so that we might have life and Jesus himself said that when he leaves, he would send the Spirit, and he's, he's done that. And we rejoice in that this morning. May we not take lightly what you have done for us and in us. Lord, keep us humbly dependent upon you. Lord, we repent of those times where we are cautious, thinking that maybe we shouldn't come to you, maybe we shouldn't bother you. 
Lord, renew our minds and remind us that you delight in hearing from your children. You delight in answering the request of your children to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.